ultimate purpose. But six days after revealing this truth to his disciples in a way that, frankly, they did not understand, we see that Jesus took with him now Peter, James, and John. And he led them, in verse 2 we see, he led them up high on a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You ever, you ever been in an instance like that where you literally just didn't know what to say? And maybe you said something that later you thought back on and you thought, that was dumb. Why did I say that? The Bible tells us that's exactly what Peter does here. Right? He kind of opens his mouth and sticks his foot in. He says something that, that, that really has no bearing on the, the, the situation ultimately, showing that he, he really didn't know what to think of all of this because it was so incredible that it totally just took him by surprise. It blew him away. In verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Till the son of man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matters to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So as we try to understand what is happening here in this passage, as we try to make sense of these circumstances, Let's, let's look at what we see revealed to us through the events of the transfiguration. Five different points that I want to make that, that I think can help not only in, in our understanding of this text and how this text fits with the ultimate story of the gospel, the unfolding story of Christ in, in the gospel of Mark, but also importantly... As we see the story of the transfiguration revealing these things, I think more than, just, more than just understanding how this fits in the unfolding story of Jesus with his disciples, we'll see how this reveals to us how we can understand what it is that God wants to show us, how it is that God wants to reveal himself to us so that we might know and do his will in our lives even today. Not just a story of the disciples, but a story that continues to speak and and teach us, direct us, we might say, for our lives today. The first point that we see in this is that the transfiguration reveals a glimpse of Jesus' glory. In the transfiguration, we see a glimpse of his glory. And so that's important, a glimpse of his glory. That ultimately, this isn't all of it, this isn't, this isn't, Everything, but it's a glimpse of what was to come. And so what happens in this instance, the disciples, these three disciples are there and they see that Jesus' clothes all of a sudden become this radiant white. It says, 
so white, so intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And so this is beyond just sparkling clean. This is beyond just pure white, right? There's an intensity to this. What's interesting about these events, what's interesting about this moment and this glimpse of the glory is that we can see a connection with this to the way that God is revealed in his glory, glimpses of his glory, we would say, in the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus chapter 24, we have an instance where God calls Moses to come up on the mountain and to meet with him. And there on the, on the mountain, on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, we find that God gives the law to Moses. He reveals the covenant to Moses, written in tablets of stone. And what do we know that happens when Moses comes down off of the mountain? That his face shone so brightly, so radiantly, that Moses had to wear a veil because it was too much. That just by catching a glimpse of the glory of God, that Moses' own face shone with a radiance, with a brightness. And we see also of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. That Elijah saw on on a mountain, Elijah saw an appearance of the glory of God, but it was too much for Elijah. He couldn't take all of the glory of God. And so we see that God hid Elijah in the cleft of the rock and he passed by. And as he passed by, he saw a glimpse of the glory of God, right? That that it, it it was it was just a a, a piece, it was just an element of the, the glimpse of God's glory. In the Old Testament, this is the way that God's glory is revealed. It's, it's radiant splendor. It's bright light. It's, it's this intense, glorious greatness. And people are only given just but a glimpse of that. Well, interestingly here, the disciples catch a glimpse of that as well, at least these three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And who is it that they see with Jesus on the mountain? They see Moses and Elijah. Now, it's interesting on multiple levels. First of all, many, many biblical scholars believe that the, the appearance here of Moses and Elijah is significant on multiple levels. For one, both Moses and Elijah saw a glimpse of the glory of God. I, I've just described some of those instances to you from the Old Testament scripture. But not only that, it, it's considered significant because of what Moses and Elijah represent here. Moses representing the idea of the law, that Moses being the one that God gave the law to, he's the one that led the children out of Egypt through the the period of the Exodus. He was God's chosen instrument to lead his people through the wilderness. And then there in the wilderness, God gives the law to the children of Israel. He gives them the law through Moses that they might follow the law, that they might obey the law. And so Moses' presence here on the mountain with Jesus is indicative of the law, that God gave the covenant law to his people. Elijah was, was one of the prophets, and, and many consider him perhaps to be the greatest of the prophets because of the, the, the events, the things that took place. Consider, for example, that it was in Elijah's ministry that, that he fought the prophets of Baal, that he built the altar, and that he called down fire from heaven that consumed the offering, and that then they, they killed over 400 prophets of Baal. It was Elijah who performed these great miraculous feats, who, who saw these, these incredible things 
things of, of God happen. And so Elijah is representative of the prophets, the one that God had spoken his word, his predictions of the, of the coming Messiah, the prophecies that, that Jesus ultimately fulfills. And so Elijah's presence here is indicative of, or it's symbolic of, the, the prophecies and the, uh, given to God through his prophets. So you have here represented both the law and the prophets. And Jesus, interestingly, is the fulfillment of both. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law. We read about that in the book of Galatians. And Jesus fulfills, perfectly fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. So he's both, he's both the fulfillment of the law, he's the fulfillment of the, of the prophecies of the prophets, but also significantly there was, a, there was a passage in the Old Testament that spoke of Elijah being the precursor, the, the signal, if you will, that Elijah would come again and that his presence would signal the beginning of the end, that the, the, these things had come to their fruition, that things had come to pass, and that God was sending his chosen one. Now, what's interesting and significant about that is that's exactly what's taken place here, and yet the disciples are confused about it because it doesn't happen quite the way that they expected that it would. See, they didn't believe the Messiah would come and that he would establish a heavenly kingdom. They were expecting an earthly kingdom. They were expecting him to come and establish a royal throne and be a great conquering warrior who would champion the cause of the people of of Israel, that he would restore them unto their prominence and he would restore the throne of David and he would bring them back to their rightful place as the chosen people of God. And so they were waiting for him to do these things. And they were confused because they're saying to themselves, Jesus, we see, we see these signs, and yet what's happening? Because this isn't going quite like we thought it was supposed to go. And, and that's, what, that's why we, we would say this is a glimpse of his glory. Because although this is, this is given to indicate to them that in fact the time had come. Although these events are happening so that they might know and believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They don't see him in the fullness of his glory the way that they expected. They, they caught only a glimpse of his glory. When we think about this, when we think about a glimpse of Jesus' glory. Think about where do you see glimpses of his glory in the world today? What are some of the things that you might that you might look at that you might indicate are somehow a, a glimpse of of the glory of God? Maybe it's maybe it's a beautiful sunset, or maybe it's a majestic a majestic scene like a, a, a you know a great mountain or or the beauty of sitting beside the ocean and and just watching the the waves crash against the the shore. Maybe it's Maybe it's something incredible like the laughter of your children. I don't know what it might be for you, these, the little glimpses that you get to the glory of God, these little ways in which we see his greatness and his beauty and his majesty in the world around us. But whatever it is, I, I think all of that pales in comparison to what the disciples saw here. Because what they saw was so radiant, so intense, so great, that they lacked even the words to describe what it is that was happening. They caught a glimpse, just a glimpse of Jesus' glory. Secondly, we see that the the transfiguration reveals the Father's favor. 
not only do we see the disciples caught a glimpse of his glory, that we too can behold glimpses of his glory, that we can see evidences of where God is at work in the world around us, but they, they saw the Father's favor in the transfiguration. And so, much like what we have previously seen at the time of Jesus' baptism, now there is, there is the voice of God audibly speaking to the disciples. We read that a cloud overshadowed them in verse 7. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So God spoke to the disciples. And he said to them, this is my son. Listen to him. They, they see the father's favor on the son. God, this is my son, the father says. This is the one. I want you to listen to him. I want you to do what he says. It's significant because the father's favor here is an indicator to us that Jesus was doing the work of the Father, that Jesus was doing things that not only that that were pleasing to God, but literally we could say he was accomplishing the will of the Father. And so we see the Father's favor spoken in in a way that the disciples could, could undeniably, unmistakably recognize it. This is my son, do what he says. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be easy for us? Wouldn't it be awesome if every time God had something to say to you, like you heard an audible voice from heaven saying, this is it. This is what I want, right? Those burning bush type of moments. We, we know that Moses saw the burning bush in, in, in Exodus chapter three. And there as he was beholding this burning bush, the, the bush was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. And he heard God speaking out of the bush. Undeniably, this was an act of God that Moses beheld, right? Just like we see here, undeniably. This is the voice of God. This is the, this is the presence of God saying, this is my son. Do what he says. Wouldn't it be awesome if, if we had that today? Think of all the times in your life when you're trying to discern God's will. You're trying to figure out what God wants of you. You're trying to figure out the direction that he has. You're wanting to know just the simple question of, is this what God wants? Is this what he would have me? Wouldn't it be awesome if, like, if the voice of God would somehow communicate to you audibly? Do this. This is it. This is my will. You know? that, that would be incredible. And, and yet, also, I, I wonder if, Perhaps the reason why God doesn't speak and doesn't work that way is because if he were to speak and move in that kind of sense, then we would never really truly live by faith. You see, faith requires of us that we, that we trust him. Faith requires of us that we, that we try to listen to that still, small voice through which God speaks. Faith requires of us that we study the scripture through which God speaks to us today. Faith requires of us that we fall on our faces before God in prayer and that we seek him and that we seek his will. And literally, as the scripture said, that we seek his faith, his face, excuse me. Faith requires of us that we trust, that we follow, that we, that we listen. Yes, it would be easier if God would just speak. This is my will do this, right? But I believe in God's God's perfect grace. I believe in his love for us. I believe in his goodness. And and I believe in all these things that if that was what was best for us, then frankly, that's what God would have given us. 
But instead, in his perfect way and in his perfect love for us, he's chosen to speak through his word. He's chosen to speak to us through prayer. He's chosen to speak to us through circumstances in our life. He's chosen to speak to us through others and the ways that he confirms his work with his people. God is actively speaking to us today. It may not be an audible voice that cries out from heaven, you know, do this, this is my will. But let's not overlook the fact that God is actively working, actively speaking, actively moving all around us. We must position ourselves to listen and respond. And so we see here the transfiguration reveals a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. The transfiguration reveals the Father's favor. Also significantly, we see that the transfiguration reveals that Jesus' timing is true. His timing is true. And so after the disciples hear this voice, this is my son, listen to him. It says in verse 8, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And then as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what is this rising from the dead? What does this mean? Jesus reveals to his disciples here, this, especially this inner core of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, that he, was going to, that he was going to be raised from the dead. And so he says to them, guys, I don't want you to say anything about this, what you've seen, to anyone until I'm raised from the dead. Now, he's already predicted in the verses that we have passed over for the purpose of our study this morning, but in the, the latter verses of chapter 8, Jesus has already predicted his death and his resurrection. So he's revealed to all of his disciples that he would die and that he would be raised again. And they didn't understand what he meant. We see that even here, plainly. They questioned what this rising from the dead might mean. And Jesus says to them again, Guys, I don't want you to, I don't want you to say anything about this until I've risen from the dead. Now, what... What do I mean here when I say that the transfiguration reveals Jesus' timing is true? That Jesus knew the perfect timing in all of these events. Jesus knew when he was to go to the cross. We see that here. He, there's an awareness, there's an understanding that now, now these events have set into motion a, a, series of, a series of circumstances, a series of events that would culminate ultimately in his death and his resurrection. He knows this to be his purpose. He knows this to be the reason for which he's come. And even though the disciples don't fully understand it all, even though they're confused by what all of this means, Jesus, no doubt, understood the the true timing of all of this. And so, in order that they might not share this with others when when this was intended to be a, a moment for them, this specific group, Peter, James, and John, in order, that they might, in order that they might keep this to themselves until the right time, Jesus says to them plainly, don't, don't say anything about this. His timing is true in all things. Now, you and I would look at this and it would be easy for us to question why. 
right? I mean, naturally, it's easy for us to read this story and, and, and think about the circumstances and the timing of all these events and just ask the, the most basic question, why? Why did these things happen the way that they did? And frankly, I, I can't tell you the reason why other than to say that Jesus knew what he was doing and his timing was true. And so in God's sovereign wisdom, in his perfect timing, he knew what he was doing. And he chose that this was the moment for the disciples to see him and catch a glimpse of his glory. This was the moment when they were to receive this confirmation from the Father that this was, in fact, the Son of God. That he was doing the work of the Father, the will of the Father. And that they were then to keep this to themselves until the timing was right to share this with everyone else. Jesus' timing is true. And just like Jesus' timing is true in this instance with the disciples, I believe that his timing is true in our lives as well. There are so many circumstances in our life that we can look at, that we can point to, that we question why. Why these things and why now? And and frankly, there are so many times in life when we would love to know why. And the reality is we don't get the answer, right? There are so many times when we might ask God why, and we never really receive the answer why. What I want you to hear this morning is that even when you don't understand why, you can trust that God knows what he's doing, that his love for you is perfect, and that his timing in your life is true. The disciples didn't understand everything that was happening here. But honestly, what we can see is they didn't have to understand all of it. God was still working, and the answers would come. Can I say to you this morning, if you're going through a season of life, and you're questioning, God, why? I don't understand the timing of these events. I don't understand the timing behind all these things that I'm I'm dealing with right now. Can I share that same word of encouragement to you? You don't have to know why to trust God. If you will will draw near to him, if you will seek after him and follow him, his timing is true. There may be a point down the road when you get the answers to your questions. But even if you don't, frankly... Trust that God's timing is true. He knows what he's doing. His love for you is great. He can be trusted. Fourth in this passage, we see this. The transfiguration reveals that Jesus' plan is perfect. Not only is his timing true, but his plan is perfect. So in the fullness of time, he would bring about the course of events that would perfectly accomplish the will of the Father. They ask him here, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They they saw this figure on the mountain that that was Elijah. And and so now they're questioning, Jesus, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come? We're, We're waiting for this sign from Elijah. And what was Jesus' response? Jesus' response to him, to them here was significant. Jesus responds this way. He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated 
with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And so we see the the perfect timing in all of this, but also the, the perfection of his plan. His plan is perfect. What Jesus is saying to them is, look, guys, it has happened. You, the disciples wanted to know, why was it that, why was it that, that Elijah must come first? And, and when is Elijah going to come? That's really a, a part of the question they're asking. When is Elijah going to come? And Jesus says to them, it's right what is written that Elijah must come first. And then the son, then the son must suffer. They expected Elijah to come and be a precursor to all of these things and to champion the fact that the Messiah was coming and they, and they didn't understand why it hadn't happened. And what Jesus was telling them is that, in fact, it had happened. We understand now, again, looking back on these events with, with many years of biblical scholarship to to trust in, we understand that John the Baptist, in fact, was this, this Elijah figure. That John the Baptist was this precursor, this forerunner to Christ. John the Baptist was the Elijah that Jesus spoke of here. Now, he wasn't Elijah reincarnate. He wasn't, he, he wasn't literally the person of Elijah in a human form. But figuratively, John the Baptist fulfilled the role of the prophet Elijah as the one who cried out, as it says in John chapter 3, like a voice in the wilderness, make straight the paths of God. So John the Baptist performs this role. And what did they do? They killed John the Baptist. We, we studied that even in our study through the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus is pointing to these things. And he's saying, look, guys, there's a plan here. Trust me, there's a plan in all of this. And just as the Old Testament says that Elijah must come, Elijah has come. And I'm telling you, they did to him what they wanted. But not only that, Elijah's coming points to the suffering of the Son of Man. That he should suffer many things. Well, where does the Bible say that? In Isaiah chapter 53. I read to you earlier from Isaiah 53, 7. When we read Isaiah chapter 53, we see that the Son of Man would suffer in all of these things. You may say, well, did the disciples ever get it? Did they, did they ever put all of the pieces together in this? Can I show you that they did? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter was one of the disciples here on the mountain. Peter, James, and John. The inner, the, the, the inner core, this inner group of three. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, this is what Peter writes. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But look at what he says. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What is he speaking of there? He's speaking of the transfiguration. We saw with our own eyes the majesty of Jesus. Look at verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter later can look back on those events and he can say, I was there. 
I saw it. I beheld firsthand with my own eyes the majesty of Jesus. And I can tell you, this truly was the Son of Man. This was the Messiah. This was the chosen one of God. He revealed himself to earth, to us in his perfect timing. And so that's what the transfiguration reveals. The, the timing is true. The plan is perfect. But then also importantly... We see that the transfiguration reveals that Jesus was sent to suffer. Now, of all of these events, I would say this is perhaps the one that the disciples struggled with the most. And why is that? Because the suffering of Christ was not what they expected. The suffering of their Savior, the suffering of their Messiah. What they expected was for the Messiah to come... And be this great conquering victor who would restore to Israel the prominence that they once knew under King David. That he would would rid the earth of their enemies. That he would establish the throne of David forever. Now we know that's exactly what Jesus did. We know that through his death and his resurrection, that he once and for all conquered sin. Even greater than establishing an earthly throne, he established a permanent heavenly throne with his dominion and his sovereign rule over all of his creation. Not even death itself could stop Jesus. But that's exactly what the disciples are struggling to understand here because these events are unfolding. And what Jesus says to them is, guys, at the fullness of time, you're going to see it all. I don't want you to say anything about this now. Wait until I've risen from the dead. And in that moment, you'll understand what it means when I tell you that Elijah has come and that they did to him what, he, what, what they wished. And that the Son of Man will suffer and fulfillment of the prophecy as it was written of him. Jesus is pointing to all of these things and what he's, what he's assuring his disciples of is this truth. My plan is perfect. My timing is true. I know what I'm doing. If you will trust me, if you will follow me, And in the fullness of time, you will understand all of these things. And that is exactly the word that I think that God wants to say to you today. God can be trusted in your life. His timing is true. His plans are perfect. He has authority over all things in this world. If you will trust him and follow him, he will do exactly what he's promised The key for us is that we have to live by faith. We have to follow him in faith. We have to trust him, not knowing for certain how things will work out in the future. Not knowing exactly how these things will come to pass. Precisely how all of the details and all of the the fine print is going to work itself out in our lives. Is it enough for you to know that God loves you? that he's he's perfect in all that he does, that his ways are true, that he's good, that he can be trusted? Is it enough for you to follow him by faith? The disciples were faced with that, that key moment of decision here. And we recognize that they chose to trust him and to walk by faith. Why? Well, even by the witness of Peter later in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he tells us as much, right? 
We saw these things happen. We beheld the majesty of Jesus. We followed after him. We beheld his glory. And, and if you read that in its context, there in more than just those verses that I shared, what Peter is saying is, look, we've seen these things to be true. We know that this is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. We can trust him. We can follow him with confidence and faith, knowing that when we walk by faith with him, he's going to do exactly what he promised. That's exactly the word that, that I think God wants to share with us today. His timing is true. His plan is perfect. He can be trusted with the details of your life. In a moment this morning, we're going to have a time of response, a time of invitation. And in that time of invitation, our altars will be open here. Maybe what you need this morning is you need to come and in prayer, you need to just... You need to cry out to God, seeking Him on your face before Him in prayer, saying, God, I am going to trust You, even though the future seems uncertain, even though I don't understand how all of this is working, I don't know all of, all of what You're doing, and I don't see the picture completely and fully the way that You do, God, I trust You. And you need to, as, as an act of worship, surrender to him this morning and just say, God, I choose to trust you. Even when I don't see what you're doing, even when I don't see what lies around the corner, God, I trust you. Maybe you're here this morning and you hear this and you, and you see clearly what's happening here. And, and, and what it challenges you with is, is this key truth. Are you willing to trust Jesus with your life the way that the disciples so so willingly trusted him here. Now I say willingly, we know that it was a struggle for them too. The, the gospels give us that much detail. They didn't always know everything. They, they didn't trust him in this moment and all doubts went away and all fears subsided and they never wavered again, right? Even this Peter, we know later denies Christ, right? We know how the story plays out. We know that, we know that there were moments when they struggled and they wrestled to understand by faith. But yet, through it all, they persevered in that faith because they trusted Jesus with their very lives. Today, do you know for sure that you've trusted him with your life? Do you know that by faith you've surrendered to him, that you're believing in his promises, you're trusting in his perfect goodness because you've surrendered your heart and your life to him? If God is speaking to you today, and you sense clearly that he's calling to you saying, this is it. This is what you, this is, this is what you're missing. Trust me by faith. Then would you let this be the day? Would you let this be the moment when you surrender your life to him? And just as we witnessed that faith so beautifully on display in our baptistry this morning through, through the bold witness of, of Chloe, who said, I've trusted Jesus with my life. Am I, are you going to follow him? You saw. She should, yes. Yes, I am. I'm going to follow him. Would you be willing to trust him with your life and to follow him by faith? If that's you, then as we sing this song of invitation during the time of response, I would encourage you that you would come and speak with one of our staff and let us pray with you a prayer of faith that you might surrender your life to him this morning. Whatever way God is speaking, however it is that he's moving, you, you need to know that he can be trusted he can be trusted with the details of your life. He can be trusted that he's going he's to remain true to his word, his promises to you. He can be trusted that his plan is perfect, his timing is true in your life. He can be trusted. 
when you follow him by faith, you will never be disappointed. He will always come through in the way that he said he would. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? I want to pray just a, a, a word of a word acknowledging in, in this moment that, that we want to look to God and ask him to move in our hearts. And then after I pray, we're going to sing this song together. And as we do that, our altars are open. Our staff are here at the front. We encourage you to come and respond this morning as we sing. Lord, humbly before you.